listening to Ohio versus the world, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the world is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 10, Ohio versus Con Men. Today, we're going to be telling the first of two con artist stories over our next two episodes. Whether it's the Tinder Swindler, Inventing Anna, or Elizabeth Holmes and her fraudulent company Theranos, con artist stories are all over your streaming services and the news. I'm old enough to remember Bernie Madoff, not quite old enough to remember Charles Ponzi and his Ponzi scheme. Con artists have proliferated history, from the magic tonic salesman of the 18th and 19th century to the sophisticated financial con artists of the digital age. We're going to tell the story of one of the most brazen and daring con artists of the last 50 years, a man from Ashtabula, Ohio. And today we'll tell the story of John Spano. John, just a regular guy from Northeast Ohio with probably less money in his checking account than you or I, who bought a major sports franchise, the National Hockey League's New York Islanders, at age 32 back in 1997. I'm a big hockey fan, a season ticket holder, right on the ice with my beloved Columbus Blue Jackets. Don't sleep on the CBJ in these coming years. They're building something over there at High and Nationwide. But we'll share how in 1997, John Spano bluffed his way to the ultimate, in most guys' fantasies, owning a major league sports team. And like most Connors, it all eventually comes crashing down in epic fashion. It's stressful to even think about what he was trying to pull off. We'll sit down with the enterprising journalist that busted this fraud wide open and nearly brought down the NHL's commissioner and sent John Spano to federal prison. We're in the third period here of Season 7 of Ohio vs. the World. We only got three episodes left, and you can go back and hear the entire season on evergreenpodcast.com. We're proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can always reach us uh, on Facebook, Ohio v. the World, Instagram, Ohio v. the World Podcast. We're on Twitter at Ohio v. the World, or email us. A lot of people just email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com with show ideas. If you want to buy a really sweet Ohio v. the World t-shirt, all that stuff, but go back and listen to Season 7, some of the best work we've done. John Spano, the Ohio native, a mildly successful small business owner, turned NHL majority team owner in a matter of weeks. We'll talk about the web of lies and illegal fraud he commits to achieve his dream of owning a major sports franchise. Almost everything that New York Islanders fans thought they knew about the savior of their franchise, the millionaire Texas businessman who is going to finally revive this formerly great team, just about everything they knew was a lie. John Valenti from Newsday, the paper of record in Long Island, will join us to discuss the rise and fall of John Spano. He's the one who broke this story, writes for Newsday still. And we'll go back 25 years to 1997 when Valenti and his team at Newsday exposed one of the biggest frauds in American sports history. Let's drop the puck. It's episode 10, Ohio versus Conman. John Spano, he's one of the more interesting con men of the last 50 years. The problem is he keeps getting caught. The New York Islanders were an expansion franchise in the National Hockey League. The only team on Long Island, they found almost instant success. By their third season, they made the playoffs, and they would make it for 14 straight seasons. Remarkable run. A young John Valenti grew up rooting for the Islanders, and in the mid-90s, he would end up as the team's beat reporter for Newsday, a team that would go on to win four straight Stanley Cups in the 1980s. No team has won four straight in a major sports league since the 1980s, New York Islanders. 
They were the most successful sports franchise in North America. John Valenti joins the program to discuss the glory days of Islander hockey and their importance still today to Long Islanders. What you have to understand is that Long Island, despite its size, and I know the joke around the country is always, oh, you're from Long Island. Long Island is a series of small towns that over time with suburbia grew to become one big conglomerated place, Nassau County, Suffolk County. But really, people think of themselves as from individual towns. And we've never really had a major league sports here. 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles to the west, we have the Yankees, Mets, Jets, Giants, everything. And, of course, the Rangers. But on Long Island, there was really nothing. So the island is really kind of energized Long Island and Long Islanders to have something that they could call their own. I'm an Islander fan from my teens. And then it took another couple of years until they got into the 80s where they actually were successful. By the 1980s, the Islanders are not just the best team in hockey. They're one of the great sports dynasties. They end up winning four straight cups, go to five straight finals before finally falling to the Oilers, the Edmonton Oilers with Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier and company, are really the lifeblood of Long Island. That was the high point. By the time I started covering them, which was 19. 19- 96. The island is really had fallen on really terribly tough times. Here's Tinelli. Here's Tinelli with Nystrom. The pass to Nystrom. He scores! Stanley Cup for the second consecutive year. Six seconds away from their third consecutive Stanley Cup. No American team has ever done it. The New York Islanders are the 1982 Stanley Cup champions. Last word for Gretzky. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. After winning four Cups, the Islanders would make it back to the Stanley Cup in 1985 before falling to Wayne Gretzky and the loaded Edmonton Oilers. That was one of the greatest rosters in NHL history. The Islanders would slowly fall into disrepair. We tell you this because the steady decline of the Long Island heroes on the ice would lead to a person like John Spano even having a chance to buy the team. John Valenti talks about the 1990s in Nassau County and a loyal fan base that had turned against the ownership of their beloved New York Islanders. They were pretty much the laughing stock of the league. The owner at the time, uh, John Pickett, had really become an absentee owner. The team had really fallen through the, through the cracks and were not very good. That set the stage for new ownership. John Pickett kind of really wanted to sell at least a portion of the team, if not the entire team. Then we had this cast of characters coming in. It started out with a group called the Gang of Four, who became known as the Gang of Four, which were four individual owners that bought a piece of, and they changed the logo to this fisherman logo, which really kind of made the Islanders a laughing stock, kind of aggravated their fans who had steeped in the tradition of the Islanders and the logo and the Stanley Cup days. And so by the time I started covering, which was 1996, they really weren't a very good team and they really weren't a very good franchise. Anything that you could have wrong with the pro sports franchise, they kind of embodied. John Spano would always claim he was a New Yorker when he was becoming the owner of the Islanders. And he was born in New York City in 1964, but he's raised in Northeast Ohio, much of it in the town of Madison, Ohio, and Lake County. And he went on to go to high school at Ashtabula St. John. 
graduates in 1982. And Beulah, Ashtabula, Ohio is the Rust Belt, a town of blue-collar Ohioans devoted Cleveland Browns fans. Spano played football with a very famous Ohioan at St. John 1, Urban Meyer. John Valenti from Newsday tells us about his youth growing up in Northeast Ohio. In all our research, what we found out is, of course, Sean Spano had gone to Ashtabula. He had a very famous teammate, as it turned out. Uh, who went on to uh, coach the Buckeyes. And I got to tell you, having grown up a Michigan fan, I'm not a big fan of the Buckeyes, so I'll be honest right off the bat. <laughs> so Urban Meyer is uh, as great a coach as he was and as great a program as they had, you know, go Michigan. When we find out, we start delving into who he is. Spano originally said he had had a lot of ties to New York and to Manhattan and to Long Island. It turned out, that, that through our reporting, we found out he had really grown up in Ohio and he had gone to school in Ohio. And the people that we ended up talking to is the more and more we got into this story, which is over the course of months at this at the point we actually start reaching out and talking to the, the high school friends. They remember this guy who was kind of shy, kind of soft spoken. They had never figured that he would be the guy who ended up having enough money to buy a team. And so they were as shocked as anybody. Spano graduates from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh with a business degree. He starts his own company a few years later called the Bison Group in Dallas in the early 1990s that leases aircraft and other heavy equipment. And he's grown a successful business. It's not a booming business, but certainly a successful business. The Bison Group and Spano, they're worth more than a million dollars, maybe as much as $2 million or $3 million uh, total net worth. He's mingling with financial giants in Dallas and Fort Worth, and he learns that the Dallas Stars of the National Hockey League are up for sale. In his early 30s, he's not in a position to make a real offer on the Stars. But as we will learn, that does not stop John Spano. He also made a run at the Florida Panthers and negotiated with their owner, Wayne Huizinga. Huizinga was really looking at getting a new arena, and his flirting with Spano and other potential buyers would, would work to actually get him the arena. But the real story here is how someone with so little true net worth could even get this far in negotiations. And the lack of due diligence done by the National Hockey League on his economic strength becomes a theme in this con story uh, that would persist throughout. As John Valenti outlines, it was during these flirtations in 1995-1996 that the NHL first dropped the ball on vetting John Spano, but not without the help of some deception on his part. I'm not so sure that he ever got close to either that deal or, or the Florida Panthers deal. Yeah, the Panthers um, deal seems like he was getting kind of used on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, and I think so too. The the Stars deal, I think I think the Stars thought that he was a legitimate player when he came into the picture. We actually found the the bills for the private investigator that the NHL hired to to vet John Spano, and as it turned out, the the bill was something like five hundred and seventy dollars. And it, and it included making photocopies of some documents that Spano and his lawyer had sent over and uh, making phone calls and under 100 miles of driving. It was really, when you think of the value of a pro sports franchise in the Islanders and that deal, you know, was sold to Spano for $165 million, which was the agreement of which he came up with $80 million, which is a story in its own right. That the NHL spent 570 bucks vetting this guy uh, is really kind of mind-boggling, the, the, the lack of due diligence. One of the, the major things was the investigator called his attorney and said to him, 
you know, what's the situation? Does John have this money? And the attorney turned to John and said, do you have this money? And John said, yeah. just ridiculous that they spend $570 vetting this guy to own an NHL team. It seems like a fireable offense. But John Spano, when he was trying to buy the Dallas Stars, there's a story out there. Everyone's in the league office in New York. They all fly up from Texas. They're meeting with the commissioner. They all go out to lunch during the negotiations. The check is brought, and it's just sitting there. And Spano's not picking it up, and the Dallas executives are looking at him. And as the guy says in an interview, you know, we're all here. We all are here on our own dime coming to New York City because this guy made us come here to you know talk about buying the team, and he doesn't pick up the check. And the folks at Dallas contingent, they thought that was so weird. It's something they'd never seen from an owner or potential owner. And although the Dallas deal doesn't go through, Spano gets a real feel for the process of buying a team. We talked to John Valenti about that benefit he gets from the Florida deal and the Dallas deal, this original vetting that he gets and how it helps him buy the New York Islanders. He did uh, consider trying to work out a deal with the Dallas Stars. And I think that and the the attempt to buy the Panthers, even though he was pretty much used by Wayne Heisinger in that, so, so Heisinger could get a new arena. I think it taught Spano a lot of the potential pitfalls in a negotiation and really set the stage for him being able to get as far as he did with the Islanders deal. Like any good con man, he figured out what all the what all the potential fall points were, and he figured out a way to work around them. And I think that the people he brought he brought in with discussions, you know, of course there was Roger Staubach Construction Group and the names that he had involved. That really set the stage to kind of legitimize him. And he had already been through an investigation or or a, a vetting background check with the NHL. He knew the kind of things he needed to come up with to be able to answer questions, not raise red flags, and not set off alarms. John Pickett and the New York Islanders are looking to sell. And the commissioner, Gary Bettman of the National Hockey League Commissioner today, has a thought. What about John Spano? Didn't he grow up in New York? We just had him to the league office to talk about Dallas. He was in, he was in the hunt for the Florida franchise. And he makes a connection. And think about the New York Islanders in this situation. The commissioner of the league, the all-powerful executive, is playing matchmaker. Certainly he's done the vetting and, and the Islanders would do some, but it's this connection right here that makes such a big difference. Gary Bettman, NHL commissioner, helped put Spano in touch with the Islanders. And so by the time Spano reaches the Islanders, he's already had notable people that he's dealt with trying to buy other teams. He's already had the NHL sort of bet him on that, even though those deals never came close to closing. At least people have started to look at him. So there's an assumption that he's been properly vetted. And then when you have the commissioner reaching out and making a contact, because Bettman knew that the Islanders, that John Pickett wanted to sell his interest in the team. He had somebody who was who claimed to be a Long Islander, who was had inherited all these millions of dollars, who was interested in buying the team. All those things made all the parties involved make an assumption. John Spano and the Islanders negotiate a deal worth $165 million. And in 1996, Spano goes after a loan from Fleet Bank in Boston. Spano gets approved for an $80 million loan. It's almost half the amount he's going to need to buy the Islanders. You might ask, how does a guy worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe his business and him and his home worth maybe a couple million, how can he get an $80 million loan? 
You know, when John Spano came into the picture as this potential buyer for the Islanders, he portrayed himself as this billionaire businessman. And actually, it's a really stroke of brilliance. He claimed that a lot of his wealth had been inherited from a grandfather and from family, hundreds of millions of dollars in a trust, and created a situation where it was very difficult to verify whether that was true, because it wasn't a public, it wasn't a public entity. He claimed he had private accounts. He claimed the money had been inherited. There wasn't a way to say it wasn't like he was a guy who said, I'm some brilliant businessman and I've acquired all this, these millions of dollars of wealth through my businesses. He said, I, I was fortunate. I had family who had money and I got it. And so that was a huge part of him being able to pull this off. And so when he went to Fleet Bank, and he himself said, I, I had a tougher time getting my first used car loan than I did getting $80 million from Fleet Bank. He happened to come along at a point where Fleet was looking to make investments, especially in sports franchises. He had his own business, which was called the Bison Group, based in Dallas. And he had all these connections to notable people. He had already tried to buy the Dallas Stars, so there was already a track record of him having some associations. And Fleet Bank was all too eager to kind of not look that hard. That was the basis of the money that John Spano was able to use as his down payment to buy the Islanders. He had $80 million in a loan. He didn't have any of his money involved in it. And the deal was for $165 million. And so his goal was to come up with another $85 million dollars. And in a really smart move on his part, he convinced the Islanders that he would be allowed to make those payments in installments of five different payments for 17, roughly 17, 17 and a half million dollars a piece over the course of the next five years. And Spano ended up having a wild card that really tripped up everybody. Spano's claiming he has all this money and he's got a guy on the inside. That's how he's able to get a loan from Fleet Bank. Someone he's known for years who works at Deloitte & Touche, a very reputable accounting firm. We talked to John Valenti about how John Spano, using fraud, mind you, makes himself seem like he's worth a lot of money. He had a guy who had, who had turned, as it turned out, had been a former business partner of his, who was working as an accountant for Deloitte & Touche in, the, in, in their Ohio offices. He's the guy who vouched for Spano's wealth. He's the only person... And he was, he was an accountant at the time. He was for a le legitimate company. And so when he said he had seen the money and he claimed he had gone to the Cayman Islands and actually gone to the banks where Spano's accounts were being held, he was the one who verified that Spano had this wealth. Nobody had any reason to question it at the time. And in fact, Spano, when people would inquire about specifics on his wealth, would refer them to this accountant, that, that kind of tripped everybody up and, and kept them from maybe taking the next step and vetting even more. The NHL Executive Committee meets tomorrow in New York to discuss the Islanders' sale to John Spano, as well as possible NHL expansion. Obviously, the NHL is all in favor of John Spano. Yeah, I would never get this far if Gary Bettman didn't like it. It's sort of like the old Soviet Politburo. Brezhnev liked it. It was done. And it'll be ushered in. And it'll be ushered in. And it should, they'll approve it tomorrow. The legal approved by the end of the week, and then John Spano should have his new little toy. Spano closes in on this deal. He starts talking in the press about the need for a new arena. And he wasn't wrong. Nassau Coliseum was a dump. After 25 years, it had fallen into disrepair. John Valenti tells us that it was never that great of an arena to begin with. 
kind of the product of inside New York contracts and building contracts and shoddy work. But Spano knows that if he's going to take this thing over, getting a new arena is a big part of his plan to make this work. When the Coliseum was built, it was kind of known as the White Elephant. It was, it was never exactly what anybody had wanted it to be. It was in a bad location. It was in a place where you couldn't get to by public transportation. So that's why it didn't work for the Nets when they were there. And it didn't work for the Islanders when they were there. You had to drive. There was, it, was, it, was, it, it was not very convenient. Over time, it also fell into disrepair. It was kind of like almost obsolete when it was built. And it became more obsolete as, as time went on. And the narrow, narrow hallways, narrow corridors, not a lot of bathrooms. The facilities weren't done well. There was a lot of questionable contracts that were awarded. So by the time that John Spano comes into the picture, the building is seriously in disrepair. I mean, we're talking... In, in rainstorms and thunderstorms, water leaking in through the through the ceilings and, and bathrooms that don't work and concession stands that don't work. Yes, we will get a new building. Mr. Gallat is here and I, ho- I hope that uh, that's a good signal and sign of things to come, and I appreciate you being here. That and the building are the number one priorities. They're the same. I'll be talking to, uh, to John and to his representatives uh, in the very, very near future uh, to determine the needs, of the, <clears throat> the needs of the Islanders and our mutual objective to upgrade the Nassau County Veterans Memorial Coliseum in order to uh, meet the uh, future needs of the franchise and also to meet the needs of our fans. So Spano's got this deal set up, and it's about to be finalized. He's buying the New York Islanders for $165 million. He's got the 80 from Fleet Bank from the, from the loan, which he got through fraudulent means, but he's got it. He talks John Pickett into spreading out the remainder of the $85 million over five years on an annual payment. But even getting $17 million when you have no million dollars is a really hard thing to do. This new arena could be the answer. You get Nassau County to approve an arena, then you'll have a brand new avenue to serious cash flow. John Valenti explains Spano's first option to come up with the rest of the money to pay for the New York Islanders. One of the things that Spano talked about from day one, and that was where he was smart enough to throw out names like Roger Staubach and the Roger Staubach Construction Group in Dallas, was that he was going to come in and get a deal to have a new coliseum built, either to do a real renovation or to do a brand new coliseum and to also develop the area around the coliseum. And I also think that that was part of his game plan. He's never publicly admitted it. Yeah. But I think when it comes to the other 85 million that was out there, I think part of what he had hoped to do was to be able to entice people to give him a construction loan. And so it was going to be a shell game. He could get a construction loan where he would be able to bring in money and pay the Islanders the money that was outstanding. And then he could take from Peter to pay Paul and he would have no overhead on his own. And I think the one thing that he underestimated was how slowly local governments could work (laughs) and also how the environmental impact works with that. And as we've seen, the only reason that a, a new building ever honestly got built for the Islanders on Long Island, which is the new UBS arena, is because the governor at the time, Andrew Cuomo, that wasn't going to be the case in Nassau at the Nassau Coliseum with the property that was there. 
And I think that that ended up being the shortcoming for John Spano ultimately in the deal. And I think that that slowed it down so far that it allowed time for everybody to catch up on what was really happening here. So the arena deal is dead. At least it's not going to happen as fast as John Spano needs it to. His next gambit is to try and negotiate a new cable deal with the Islanders uh, TV provider, Cablevision. Cablevision is giving the Islanders $13 million a year then. These old contracts that they got back from when they won the Stanley Cup multiple times. But Spano's got an idea. What if we renegotiate a new contract where you pay me, I don't know, $17 million a year? And we extend the life of the contract with Cablevision, which just happens to be the exact amount, $17 million, that he needs to pay at closing and what he needs to pay annually to continue to hold his 90% stake in the Islanders. You know, the Islanders are one of the first teams that really capitalize on cable TV. They really had one of the best deals in all of sports in terms of money that was coming on a Cablevision rights. And that was because they signed it. You know, Cablevision was a huge provider on Long Island at the time. The Islanders, because they were Stanley Cup champions, they were able to strike a really beneficial deal that brought in 13, 13 million a year. So what Spano had suggested was to re- slightly renegotiate that where he would get 17 or so million dollars a year. He told the Islanders and John Pickett, I'll use that money to make my payments. And that's why they allowed him to, to spread out the other $85 million over the course of the next five years. Though the first payment was going to have to be made at closing. But he's a hero in Long Island. He was the Texas millionaire riding in on the white horse who's going to save their flagging franchise. It was a speech made by the legendary New York Islander Clark Gillies, bruiser, two-way forward fighter on all those great um, Islanders championship teams. His number was being hung up and retired at Nassau Coliseum. He gives this speech, and you can hear just how much folks from Long Island thought John Spano was the answer. Clark Gillies addresses the crowd at Nassau Coliseum in December of 1996. There's been a commitment made here in Long Island by a fellow by the name of John Spano. And between John Spano, these fellows, this hockey team you have in front of you, and I honestly believe if those three commitments are made by John Spano, by the team, and by the fans, that before too long, we're going to have a Stanley Cup again here on Long Island. Thank you all very much. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. To those people, I promise you we will do what it takes to get back to where this team once was. And thank you for welcoming me back to Long Island and back to New York. I may live in Texas, but this is where I'm born and raised. And that was Spano as he prepares to take over the Islanders. Of course, as you know, he's not raised in New York. He's raised in Ohio. He went to high school with Urban Meyer, like we said. Everyone had bought into John Spano's lies. He's positioned to take over the New York Islanders. Lawyers are drawing up the paperwork. But as the closing date approaches, Spano doesn't have the money. The arena deal is stalled. The cable deal isn't looking like it's going to happen. I'm an attorney. I've been to many closings. Even this week, I've had a couple closings. And I've been to closings where the person doesn't come through with the money. You walk away. 
John Spano walks into the closing. All the papers are lined up. Everyone's there. The owner, John Pickett, his team, everyone's ready to sign. The only thing that isn't there is the money. But John Spano, like any good con man, just keeps moving forward. Everybody meets. They sit down to sign the deal. And and the, the money's not there. And John Spano came up with all these reasons. Over the course of, of the, the days and weeks that followed, there were money transfers, wire transfers that were sent to the Islanders. One was supposed to be for, for $17.5 million. It came through for like $1,750. There was one that was supposed to be made for $5 million. It came through for $5,000. He claimed that they were clerical errors, that he had money because he had money tied up in trust funds and all these elaborate business dealings overseas, that there were issues and that the people who were doing it, that some of the wire transfer orders got messed up by clerks. Despite not having the money at closing, John Pickett decides to sign over the team. Going against the advice of some of his attorneys, he's of the belief that John Spano's good for it. He came through with the $80 million, uh, albeit on a loan. Deloitte and Touche had verified his funds. His lawyer had verified the funds. And most of all, Pickett's relying that the NHL has done their due diligence. They're the ones who had introduced John Spano. The commissioner of the NHL himself had suggested he buy the team. Pickett makes a decision that he'll ultimately regret to give control of the team to John Spano, the Ohio-born conman who is now the majority 90% owner of a major sports franchise, despite not having anywhere near the money to be in that position. It became clear to us that to ensure our success and achieve those goals, we needed to change the majority owner of this franchise and to find a majority owner who would be totally committed in time and resources to achieving those goals. I am pleased to announce that we have found that individual, and his name is John Spano. He knows his hockey, he's dedicated, he's young, he's bright, he's creative, he's financially strong, and most importantly, he has an unrelenting desire to win. John Spano is in control of the Islanders, and he's charging an extravagant lifestyle to that Islanders credit card. He's seen out with multiple women. I believe the term is escorts. He's a married man. He's flying back and forth to Texas, to New York, to away games, all on the Islanders' dime. We talked to John Valenti about the John Spano, who for months was the owner of the Islanders, and he was living the high life. We heard stories. There was a place called the Garden City Hotel, which was steeped in tradition. And so John Spano, when he came into town, would stay there. The Garden City Hotel was two miles from Nassau Coliseum, made a lot of connections there. And as we found in our reporting, uh, ended up paying almost all of his bills through Islander money. Over time, he was charging anything and everything to his room. I think we found the bills at some point for like $4,000 in porno videos uh, that had been charged to his room. So yeah, he was living the high life. Our guest, John Valenti of Newsday, he first meets John Spano when he takes over the team and he invites all the beat reporters and John, as the beat reporter for Long Island's main newspaper, Newsday, to go out to lunch. John tells this story about the limo ride from the arena to lunch, a story that would make a lot more sense in the months to come. One of the things that Spano does when he first agrees in principle to buy the team, he arranges to meet with the beat reporters and take them out to lunch in Garden City. So he shows up in a limousine at NASA Coliseum. We get in the limo and we start heading off to lunch. And this conversation, Spano's asking us about what we do and all this other stuff. And Along the way, at some point, the conversation turns. One of the reporters, Colin Stevenson, 
who was working for the Daily News, who was the beat guy for the Daily News, he mentions that there's a huge lottery, a, a huge lotto jackpot that night. And Spano says to him, and I'm thinking, this is kind of embarrassing. We're all these kind of working guys, and we're talking about our dream of winning the lotto, and we're sitting in a limo with the guy who's just, he claims to be, like, have hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's just agreed to buy the Islanders, and here we are talking about the lottery. And Spano says, how does that pay? Can you collect it all at one time, or do you have to take it in installments? <laughs> and so when all the story finally unraveled, that comment made so much sense to me. And I had this mental picture afterwards of Spanner going out and buying like $100 worth of lottery tickets, hoping that somehow he's the guy who has the winning ticket and can use that to make his payments to buy the Islanders. John Spano's running the New York Islanders. He hires a new coach. He pushes Mike Milbury, who's the coach and GM, to just the GM position. There's player transactions. Things are happening. He has control of a major sports franchise that he still has not completed the payment for. And he is, comes up with some of the most amazing excuses of all time. We didn't have enough time to get into all of them. But he blames things like international terrorism. John Valenti starts running through the list of John Spano's excuses for not paying. There was at one point he claimed that there was... Uh... IRA involvement because there was an IRA bombing that happened to have taken place. Yeah, that's my favorite one. It was one that involved uh, with some of his other business dealings because he had other dealings that he had also defaulted on, including some with Nordstrom's and other places where he was trying to market cookware and all these other things he was bringing in for South Africa. He ended up blaming plagues of locusts on things. There were a million crazy crazy uh, explanations. The IRA bombing was an interesting one. I think there was also something like they might have involved the kidnapping or something. There were all sorts of crazy explanations. The bottom line is the money never gets delivered. But by this point, he's already signed the contract. Part of the reason it gets to this point, this accountant at Deloitte and Touche has verified that no matter what, Spano has this money sitting in a trust fund offshore. So if and, if, if and when that money's ever needed, it's there. You can guarantee it's there. The NHL starts getting involved. The old owner, John Pickett, obviously is concerned when these payments for $17 million have still not arrived. The NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, gives him seven days to come up with $5 million. Like John said, sure enough, a wire comes through for $5,000. It's this kind of stuff. It's just obvious that something is terribly wrong here. John Valenti's on the inside here in Long Island, and he starts hearing that this is a serious problem, that something might be wrong with John Spano, the new owner of the Islanders. And things began to unravel. Once the payments started to not come through, that was a real red flag for everybody. And so people really started going back and trying to figure it out. It's around this point where we start getting these documents and we start looking further. And, and certainly, certainly having the auditor with the red flags, because no sooner did we get that case material contacted the accounting firm, and immediately they were unaware of that, so they immediately fired the guy. And then, as you know, you start asking questions, and then you one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. I was involved. I had some some contacts who were dealing with the Pittsburgh Penguins. We found out there had been this deal where Spano had ultimately built Mario Lemieux out of money, more than a million dollars. Spano had actually taken this money, this investment money from Mario Lemieux, and it used it to pay the Islanders' payroll. 
of all things. <laughs> to hear Mario Lemieux was playing against the Islanders, and and he his own money was paying the Islanders payroll some weeks, and probably paying for a you know helping pay for John Spano's bills at the Garden City Hotel as well. And so all these stories started to steamroll to the point where I ended up. So I would I would go to the Coliseum for the morning skate, talk to people. I would go across the street to the U.S. Attorney's office, and I and at the time I didn't know anybody there. We ended up becoming close in terms of I would see what information I was able to get, and then I would try and vet and verify it through them, and then they would kind of give me a heads up on some things. Over time, as we as we uncovered all these different aspects of the story and got it verified and we're able to have them verify it even further, they were also building their prosecution of Spano and their criminal complaint against Spano based on things that we had and documents we had. John Valenti's on the case. He's a great reporter. He's an awesome interview. So cool. He was joining us 25 years anniversary of this investigation. But one day at Newsday, a box has dropped off, and it's full of all kinds of documents about the John Spano transaction. Now, the paper might act like it was, you know, a mystery, but Valenti answers he knew exactly where the box came from. It came from John Pickett's folks, the old owner of the Islanders. You and I have traded emails on it. There's this box of documents that gets delivered to us. First of all, that was not some mysterious not some mysterious box. It came from somebody I, I knew who made sure that they delivered it to us, to Newsday, because they trusted us. We were we had been very fair and very diligent in our reporting. They decided to get us those documents because they trusted us and they trusted the job we would do. And so they weren't delivered to the New York Times. They weren't delivered to the New York Post. They weren't delivered to the Daily News. They were delivered to Newsday. And those documents were, were really, truly incredible. I can tell you that we had basically receipts for everything. We had wire transfer records. We had accounts. We had contracts. I can tell you, and I was a divorced dad at the time, but I had more money and I was paying alimony and child support. I had more money in my bank account than John Spano had in his bank account. Valenti and his team start working on this story. They go back to Ashabula and talk to all his old classmates they chase down all kinds of different leads on John Spano, not just with this box, but their investigation leads to one thing to another. They're working with the, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office at this point as well. But one of the main things Spano you know, uncovers is he talks to this accountant at Deloitte and Touche and quickly realizes in the documents and he alerts the authorities that something's not right here. This is the guy, the linchpin of the whole operation that said he's seen the money in the Caymans, the inheritance, all that trust fund stuff. He's seen it. Don't worry about it. It's there. Well, if you can't trust that guy, then really what else is there other than John Spano's word? The thing about Spano is he kind of came off as this, I don't, I, don't, I almost want to say a little nerdy or he wasn't the dapper movie typecast hero, you know, coming in. He was just your average guy. One of the ways to help break the story was that one of the people early on that John Spano had, had said to talk to was the accountant at Deloitte & Touche. I call up and I do this interview with the accountant at Deloitte & Touche. Spano tells us he'll be the guy who'll verify my wealth. He'll be the guy. He's actually been with me to the Cayman Islands. He's seen all the accounts. And I call this guy, Ben Mann, and he does. He verifies everything. He tells me he's gone to the Caymans. He's He's been to the bank. He's seen all the forms. He's 
He's seen the money. He's seen the money. Show me the money. He's seen the money. So I spend this time asking Ben Mann what he thinks of John Spano. He starts telling me stories about, you know, I figure, okay, this is an accountant. They probably played golf together. You know, they've obviously gone to the Caymans together, so they probably had dinner a couple times. And Ben Mann ends up telling me that he even went to John Spano's wedding. And so my reaction is, you're an accountant, and you're supposed to be an independent auditor, and you've been to the guy's wedding. That's kind of weird. That struck me as kind of weird. We started looking at Ben Mann. We started looking at the accountant and the auditor to see what the deal was there. And we found out he had been involved in in some situations, too, including an insurance fraud in Buffalo many years before when he was young. We found a federal case involving him in a fraud. And so if the guy who's the auditor has that in his background, what does that what does that say for the guy he's vouching for? And so that really was a fall point, too, as it turned out. There was one night especially where he was on the phone with Spano and Pickett, and I was on the phone with Spano and Pickett, and we were all trading phone calls. Turned out that we both had a little bit of a different take on on who was telling us the truth and who wasn't, it turned into a real he said, he said story where one side was saying this is what's going on. And the other side, John would say, the uh, picket's just trying to, he's just being greedy. He thinks he can get more money for the team. He realized he sold it to me too cheap. And that's why the deal's falling apart. And Pickett would say, we've, we've tried to get this money out of Spano, but he keeps on coming up with all these excuses. At one point, John Spano told John Pickett that his wife had cancer and that he was busy in the hospital with chemo treatments for her. And at one point, he promised to send a plane, his private jet, to leave it as collateral. And he flew the jet to, to Richmond, Virginia, where Pickett was, and he left it at the airport. And we even went so far as to figure out what the tail numbers are on the jet and run it and figure out that it was really a lease jet and that Spano didn't own it. And we confronted Spano on that one day. And he came up with this story telling us we must have had the numbers wrong or we misunderstood or, you know, there were so many things and it got so convoluted at times that that you really you had to pick it apart piece by piece. But when you did and the puzzles started to come together, you realized that the picture just didn't work. Spano loses the team. The NHL forces him to, to give it back. It's one thing that Spano regrets that he didn't take the team into bankruptcy and he would have still held on to it. He would have had a much more leeway, but I think it was kind of the idea of, hey, you give the team back, we won't sue you. He gives it back, and then he disappears. John Valenti talks about the U.S. attorneys closing in. They go down to arrest him at his home in Dallas, and he's not there. You want to know how good of an investigative reporter John Valenti is? The feds might not be able to find John Spano, but our guest, he tracks him down. It gets to the point where they decide that they're actually going to make an arrest of Spano at his house in Dallas. And because we had been so closely tied into what they were able to find out, they actually gave us a heads up and said, we're going to send the FBI to his house tomorrow. We, if you'd like to cover it, you can cover it. And so we arranged to have one of our reporters go to Dallas and a photographer go to Dallas and, and stake out the house. So when the FBI went there to arrest them, we'd be there and we'd be the first people to have it. As it turned out, I was out. I was off that day. I was on. I happened to be off that day. 
because I had worked so many days in a row with this investigation. And so I'm, I'm home. I'm with my son. We were going to go to the movies. And I get a phone call that says, John, the, uh, the FBI went to Spano's house in Dallas and he's not there. And I'm like, what do you mean he's not there? I'm like, he's not there. And uh, we just got a call from a reporter. He, they, he, he watched them go in. Spano's not there. They don't know where he is. Like the FBI doesn't know where he is. I remember when I had talked to the accountant, I had asked him like where they had stayed when they were in the Cayman Islands. He mentioned the resort. And so, I, you know, this is all pre, really pre-internet. So there was really no way to go and find out. So I call the international operator and they give me a phone number. I get the dry cleaner on the premises. I have no idea why. The dry cleaner passes me to the front desk. I get the front desk clerk and I say, I know it's a long shot, but is there a guest named John Spano there? And it's Mr. Spano just went to his room. We'll ring it for you. And so they ring the room and he picks up the phone. And, and he's like, who is this? And I'm like, it's John Valenti from Newsday. And he's like, how did you get this number? They go, don't worry about it. I said, you know, and so he told me, like, you call me again and I'll take matters into my own hands. And he hangs up the phone. He actually took control of the Islanders. He was the owner of the team for almost three months. He was flying around in the team airplane. He was making player transactions. He was signing players. He completely bamboozled the commissioner of the National Hockey League, Gary Bettman, and the family that owned the Islanders. They were all absolutely humiliated when they realized that a guy without a nickel had persuaded them that he should be the owner of the team and that he would pay, pay them the price sometime in the future. In July 1997, John Spano is indicted on bank fraud, wire fraud, forgery, you name it, he did it. These prosecutors down in Dallas, they find out, you know, they start looking through these documents and there's faxes that they don't match up. There's different fonts and there's financial documents that John Spano had created himself and sent in to verify his funds. There's other business dealings and you talked about the great Mario Lemieux million dollar swindle. All this stuff is laid bare by federal investigators. And John Spano has no choice. Bank fraud, but wire fraud, mail fraud. Uh, you know, it was the big it was the big trio, as the investigator said, because of the way all the documents were done and sent. It involved all the major fraud categories that you could have with with that because of the wire transfers and the bank transfers and loan and and the, the, the items that were sent by mail. And, you know, so once you do that, he ended up he ended up uh, getting a 71 month sentence in federal prison. And, uh, and, you know, there really was, I, I think until the point he actually pleaded to all the counts, I think he really thought he might be able to figure a way out of it. But ultimately there was really no, there was no end run on it. It, it just, it was all, it was all pretty black and white at the end of the day. Spano does nearly six years in federal prison. All the fun he had over those six, seven months and those three or four months he ran the team sure came at a price. And he had hurt a lot of people. Although John Pickett ended up selling the Islanders for more money. And the cable deal gets done for even more money. The Islanders have still never won another Stanley Cup. They ultimately would get a new arena even. Just a couple years ago, they'd actually play in a new arena in Brooklyn and are now back on Long Island with a brand new arena that opened last year. But Spano was a con man. 
And we know that because in the 2000s, he comes back to Ohio after getting out of jail. And he's living in the Cleveland suburbs. And he's arrested again for defrauding a number of companies, you know, trying to obtain loans and pocketing the fees from those loans, never getting them those loans. He does another four years in jail. He gets out in 2009. He's out for a few years. John Spano and I uh, are not, are not, we're not close at the time after, after all our reporting led to the conviction. And, and he really felt like we, we had done him wrong. And then I hadn't talked to him for ages. And then what happened is the 30 for 30 was getting made. Kevin Connolly approached me to be in the 30 for 30 big shot uh, for ESPN. That 30 for 30 premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2013. My wife and my son and his girlfriend, we go to the, we go to the premiere. We're on the red carpet. And Spano's there with his people. And we haven't seen each other since, at this point, 1997. Uh, so, so literally 16 years we haven't seen each other. And he kind of gives me this look and I'm as a reporter, you do this for a living, but it's still, you know, people are people. I mean, he still ended up in jail based on what we wrote. He was the person who did it. I, I, I as a reporter, and I've been doing this now more than 40 years. Uh, and I've been at Newsday since 1981. And the only promise I will ever give people when I do a story is I'll be fair. Whatever the truth is, it's the truth. We'll be fair. We'll do a due diligence. I'll try and present all sides of the story. If you ever did anything good in your life, I'll write about that too. If I have to write something that you did bad. And if you, if I write something that you did well, and you got praise for, if you did something bad and there's something in your background, you know, I'm obligated to give people a full picture. And I had told Spano going in, we're going to, we're going to be as fair as we can. I told his lawyer that I told him that. And so we kind of had this little stare down on the red carpet. Then we all watched the movie and and so all this, the, the original take on the movie was a little bit longer than the, the, than what was eventually released to the public. And we go out to the after party and I, and I head to the bar to get drinks and I turn around and all of a sudden I'm face to face with John Spano. We're, we're literally in this crowded bar, a foot and a half apart. And he looks at me and I look at him and he looks at me and he goes, you know, I'm sorry for back there what happened on the red carpet. I know you were only doing your job. And I looked at him and I said, and I know you were only doing yours. And so we kind of laughed a little. And I actually have one of the producers then turned and posed us. And I have a picture of me and John on my on my whole wall right now with us at the after party. The con man who almost bought the Islanders decades ago has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for a different fraud case. John Spano posed as a wealthy businessman and tried to buy the Islanders in 1996 for $165 million. He had to serve six years in prison for that incident. What did Spano do now? As we wrap up today's story, what Spano did now was in 2014, when he's charged yet again for theft and 44 counts of forgery. In Ohio, Spano says he's innocent, but he's running out of cards to play. Before it goes to trial, he decides to reach out his last card, to reach out to the man who put him in prison before. And he calls John Valenti. And as we close here, we ask John about that call the last time he spoke to John Spano. I get this call out of the blue one day, and it's John. And he tells me, look, he goes, I, I, I've been arrested. I'm going to be indicted in Ohio on this on this charges of a fraud. I was working for this company. I guess he was working for a company that did hospital linens and hotel linens and nursing home linens and stuff. And... um there, there was this investigation, and and I guess the state had brought charges against him. And he said, I got to tell you, they're not true. 
He said, but you, you're literally the only person I could trust. He goes, I know you and I have had our, our differences. He goes, but I trust, I trust in your ability as a reporter. And uh, I'd like you to look into it if you could for me. Because I really, I really think you could get to the bottom of it while nobody else can. And I, I trust you to do that. And, and, I, and I thought about that. And I'm like, I'm like, John, look, I, I can't do this. I go, you and I have already been down this road. I, I don't want to hurt you again. I, I feel like the only thing that's going to happen out of this is if you're going to get hurt. And, I, and so I really can't. I hope you understand, but I can't. And he begged me. And I told him no. And, and I told him no for, for one really big reason. And that, and that I felt that the only reason he had called me is he was out of cards. And, and he, I was his last card. And he figured if he could convince prosecutors that me of all people was looking into it on his behalf, that I believed him, that he could sell it to them saying, this is the guy who helped put me in federal prison. And now he's helping me to prove my innocence. And when I told him no, he swore to me that he was totally innocent. And the very next day he pled guilty to, I think, everyone but one of the charges. And he was sent to state prison. And I think I looked it up the other day after you and I had first traded emails. His release date is Christmas Eve of 24. I feel bad because he's a smart guy. It just makes you wonder, like, if he had, if he had used some of these tools to do things the right way where he could have gotten. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading That'll do it for today's show. John Spano still sits in Grafton Correctional Institute, southwest of Cleveland. He's inmate number A672015. We wish him the best when he gets out. There's no book recommendation from John Spano, but a book we recently read uh, called Nuking the Moon by Vince Houghton. Really cool book, uh, Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots that Were Left on the Drawing Board. Really cool Cold War book. Not something we're reading for, for the show, just something we're reading for fun. Definitely a book that we would ask you to look at. I mean, it includes a plot where we considered what would happen if we nuked the moon. Why was the U.S. intelligence and Russian intelligence thinking about that? you got to read the book to find out. But very cool book from Vince Houghton. Used to work at the Spy Museum in, in D.C. That'll do it for today. Thanks so much to John Valenti and the folks from Newsday for allowing him to come on and tell this story. It's the 25th anniversary of that great investigation that brought down John Spano and nearly brought down the New York Islanders and the NHL commissioner. Batman did survive it, and he still runs the league today. Hockey season starts here in a couple of weeks. I'm super psyched about the Blue Jackets. We signed Johnny Goudreau, Johnny Hockey, and the team is certainly back on the upswing again. I've seen a few Ohio versus the World t-shirts there at Nationwide Arena, so if you want one of those, they're blue and red, just like the Columbus Blue Jackets. You can buy those. Just email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. 
maybe we'll see in the stands this winter. The second and final episode of this series on con artists will be out in actually three weeks instead of two weeks. We're doing some traveling. And so the penultimate episode will be out three weeks from our normal Tuesday release. And it'll be a story from the early 1900s, the story of Cassie Chadwick, Ohio versus con women. Her story where she built millions upon millions out of unsuspecting banks and businessmen in Cleveland. She posed as the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. We got some great guests for that one. Really, really cool story. Started to see a couple of books written about it recently. And a story of a lot of the same of the similar things that John Spano did. Some 90 years later, um, they worked back in Cassie's day as well. And we'll tell the story of Cleveland's Cassie Chadwick in three weeks. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Two episodes left in season seven. We really appreciate you listening to another season of Ohio vs. the World. Share it with your friends. Rate and review the show on iTunes and on Stitcher. And Spotify has a rate and review. Uh, and j- more importantly, just let your friends know. As we move into fall, I hope you're having a great year. Go Browns. Go Buckeyes. And we'll see you on the flip side in three weeks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.